Hello and welcome to episode 632 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. I'm one of the co-founders here at ETR, and we're coming off of a bittersweet kind of week. I'll start on the good side first. I think it was the best week of the season so far for us in terms of projections and the context we put around those projections. Dink won 350K. Wiggins won 100K plus. Cody got fourth in the power sweep. Got a bunch of really, really nice notes from ETR people who had success, which is always appreciated and awesome. I thought the key to the week in tournaments on DraftKings was understanding that Kirk Cousins was going to be the mega chalk. Kirk Cousins ended up coming in around 70% owned in cash, which certainly flowed through to tournaments. Whereas Justin Herbert came in at less than half of the ownership of Kirk Cousins, but Herbert was arguably arguably at least, set up better. No Austin Eckler turning the Chargers way more throw heavy and also no Austin Eckler pushing so many targets to Keenan and Big Mike, making the stack cleaner. And then what Dink did, which in hindsight, of course, makes perfect sense, instead of spending the money on Justin Jefferson or overspending on guys who weren't really great plays relative to their price in Jordan Addison and TJ Hawkinson, Dink just filled a running back spot with a guy that we had projected very well in Alexander Madison, you know, no one wants to click Alexander Madison, I understand. But he still had and has an awesome role in an awesome, awesome game environment there in week three. The truth is that week three reminded me a lot of the weeks that we had early-ish last season in the 2022 season. The best plays, shout out, team play the best plays, of course. The best plays smashed. And the best GPP teams in these kind of weeks are the ones that play some tweaks off cash lineups. So... Herbert over Cousins is an example. Or like Dink's winning team actually had six guys who were in serious play for cash on DraftKings. Bill's defense, Christian Kirk, Big Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, Eisner Madison, Raheem Mostert. Obviously, when the best plays perform well, that's going to look really good, those kind of teams. And something that we've been able to glean from the Sims is that high-owned plays and high-owned players are actually totally fine, even right in tournaments at times. Playing the best plays, yes, is right. It's about playing them in a sharp way, like Dink getting in Herbert plus two sub 10% guys also in Laporta and Elijah Moore. And when the best plays fail in a week, as certainly they will often this year, well, then the super contrarian lineups, the ones with 70% some ownership or something like that, those are going to perform really well. So I would hesitate to make sweeping declarations here, such as, see, we can just play versions of our cash teams in tournaments and print. I I just think instead of saying that, I think saying, hey, I'm just going to make a repeatable process that is plus EV. That's what we should be striving for. And I definitely think that I've personally been too wild in tournaments in the past. I'm trying to just now play the best plays in a smart way. And that's something I'm focused on. And I think the Sims have helped with. For more on Dink's team though, we did about 20 minutes on his team and his whole thought process and his entire process. It's a free video. You can check it out on the site or on our YouTube. Again, Dink's review of his $350,000 winning team is free on YouTube or on EstablishTheRun.com. All right, I said it was bittersweet. On the other side of things, definitely been uh, one of the worst weeks for me on the ETR side, personally, since we started this thing. Um, We had the site go down around 11.50 a.m. Eastern on Sunday, soon after last-minute live stream started. We couldn't get it back up until after lock. 
I could talk forever about what happened and why and how we handled, but obviously that's all irrelevant. I just been walking around feeling, I guess, despondent would be a good word. I, I mean, we could all say, well, yeah, but Amazon goes down and DraftKings goes down and every site on earth goes down at times. You know, that doesn't really matter to me that much. I, the bottom line is that the whole thing was obvious, uh, was obviously awful. We are exploring all kinds of solutions to ensure it never happens again and have a better plan in place if it does. You know, it, this is the stuff you don't deal with if you work for a big company. But I have no regrets at all. Like, there's pros and cons to almost every big decision in life, I think. Doing this on our terms, doing this on our own, betting on ourselves, having total control over product, total control over marketing and everything. It's honestly been one of the best experiences of my life, you know, not even close. But of course, there are negatives. Obviously, there's a ton of administrative and operational and business and tech stuff that goes on behind the scenes that is awful and not fun. And, and there's just a ton of pressure, you know. Um, we have a lot of people working with us now. They're all incredible. I love them all. I, if we're not successful, we can't pay them, you know. And and that just creates pressure, I think. So yeah, things like the site breaking. If I was one of the five thousand employees working for ESPN or one of the 35,000 employees working for NBC, site goes down, you know, whatever, sucks, but not really my problem. But for me personally, like, I, I want it to be my problem. I, I think for me personally, I need to feel like I have something big at stake to really care a lot. So, and I want to care a lot about work. You know, we spend most of our lives, you know, sadly, but we spend most of our lives at work. I mean, I spend multiples more time on work than being with my family or friends. And so do most people. So does everyone. So anyway, I know most of you don't care about any of this stuff. Uh, really just wanted to get it off my chest. This is therapy for me. Uh, so thank you. Um, oh, I guess I should mention cash from week three quickly. Uh, it was a decent week for me. Won around 60% of my head-to-heads. Did well at high stakes. I, I think a key decision point was the 1v1 between Christian Kirk and Zach Moss. They were the same price, basically, on DraftKings. Um, Christian Kirk was obviously a very strong play against the Texans with Zay Jones out. Zach Moss was coming off of absurd usage in week two, but he was on the road at Baltimore. I had Christian Kirk in my lineup for most of the weekend. I just thought he was really strong. But in the end, running backs who can get 90% of the running back touches in our 5,500 in today's NFL... I think that's something in cash that we have to strongly consider betting on. Moss, Zach Moss literally played 100% of the snaps in week two. In week three, ahead of week three, they cut Deion Jackson, bring in Trey Sermon. Now, given that they won in week two with Moss playing every snap, and given that Trey Sermon is really bad at football, and we know Sermon's a zero in the pass game anyways, well, Zach Moss playing 90 plus, 100% of the snaps in week three was certainly in the meaty range of outcomes again. And also for Zach Moss, having Gardner Minshew in there is so much better than having Anthony Richardson in there for him. The running back target rate is way higher under Minshew. Rush, uh, Zach Moss's rushing TD expectation is going to be way higher with Minshew over Anthony Richardson. So yeah, with like 15 or 20 minutes to go before lock, I made the switch 
from Christian Kirk to Moss, and it made a difference for sure. I just think these running backs like Kieran Williams, I'm sorry, Kyron Williams, or Zach Moss, who may or not be that good at football, may or may not have a great matchup. In today's NFL, if you can get 100% of the snaps at 5,500 at the running back position, then for cash, we probably need to be viewing them as higher floor ceiling combos than comparable wide receivers, despite the whole wide receiver explosion going on in the NFL. All right. Want to get into it with the listener questions before I do reminder that if you have not upgraded from DraftKit Pro or DraftKit to in-season yet, you can do that by emailing us support at establishtherun.com. You'll get access to all our projections, shows, context around the projections, tons more. And with that, it is time for everyone's favorite portion of the program, the listener questions. Producer Luke, hit the theme music. All right. Appreciate the questions from everyone. We are going to do a seven pack today. Question one from AW says, what's your best story slash moment from a sporting event you've been to? Could be in the game or match itself, in the stands, whatever. Yeah, I've been fortunate to go to some cool sporting events. Um, Allen Iverson's first game back in Philly after he left for the Nuggets sticks out. Um, long time ago, my buddy was actually working for Walmart and he was living in Arkansas because that's where Walmart headquarters are. And I went down there to, for a, uh, Arkansas versus USC college football game at the time, USC was top five, maybe number one, even, I don't even remember, uh, Arkansas lost by about 70, but that was really cool. Uh, SEC football scene is obviously awesome. I'd say the most fun that I've had at a sporting event, if this is even a sporting event was the NBA lottery parties in Philly during the Sam Hinkie era. All the Hinkie disciples, myself included, all the process trusters, we would gather for this massive party and sweat it if the Sixers would get the number one pick or not. Um, pathetic, but awesome. But yeah, just athlete interaction or celebrity interaction. You know, someone tweeted earlier this week, what's your favorite interaction you've had with a celebrity? Which reminded me of my Birdman encounter. So I'm just outside my house shooting hoops in my driveway like a normal 40-year-old male in the midst of a full-blown MLC midlife crisis. But anyways, I'm out there shooting and this massive truck pulls up, rolls down the window, and it's Chris Anderson, the Birdman, the 6'10", 250-pound, tattooed, head-to-toe, former Nugget, former Miami Heat, former Cav, had a really, really good NBA career. Anyway, he rolls down the window and he says, when are we playing horse? And I say, no, no, you know, let's play one-on-one. Horse is in my game. Let's play one-on-one. He laughs and he says he'll be back. Of course, he never came back, you know, making me one and oh lifetime against the Birdman and one on one. And that's really it. I mean, if someone challenges you and you don't respond, that's an L in my book. It's a loss. My friend Josh, I mean, this is going to sound sick, even sicker than usual for me. But he claimed, relative to his body size, that his cock was on par with DK Metcalf's. And he set the line at DK Metcalf minus 3.9 inches erect. And he sent this note to DK Metcalf via Instagram DM. I'm not even joking. The DM said, hey, DK, big fan. You're on my dynasty fantasy football team. My friends were discussing the size of our schlongs. I was wondering if you'd be interested in a cock off. (laughs) I was wondering if you'd be interested in a cock off. 
The current line is U minus 3.9 inches. Let me know if you'd like to link up. We can do this for our favorite charities. You guys aren't going to believe this, but DK Metcalf didn't respond. <laughs> crazy, crazy, I know. But still, I, I, I got to give my friend Josh the win here. I mean, DK didn't respond. He didn't accept the challenge. So now my friend Josh has won no career in cockoffs versus DK Metcalf. You know, pretty cool thing to have on the resume. All right, question two from Ross. He says, Adam, all the podcasts I listen to are constantly pushing their YouTube channel now. Are there really that many virgins who have time to watch you guys talk? What are the benefits on your end compared to the podcast? Yeah, look, I, I love podcasts. I mean, I was listening to podcasts and doing podcasts as far back as 2013, 2014. And at that time, ton of people, the prevailing opinion was podcasts are dumb. You can never make money from podcasts. This is just a fad. You know, those people were obviously idiots. The, the problem with podcasts now for people creating them is that it's really hard for new listeners, new audience to find a podcast. There's just not a very active search function for pods. Whereas on YouTube, obviously, YouTube is effectively a search engine. People are trained to go to YouTube and type in what they want. So maybe they type in a combination of fantasy football analysis and dick jokes. And then, oh, great, we come up. Whereas for pods, there's just not the same level of discoverability. And then on top of that, there's also the generational thing. I mean, my kids, they're fucking obsessed with YouTube. It, it got so bad, I had to remove YouTube and block it from all the TVs in my house. And honestly, their mood and their attitude, it's just all so much better now. I highly recommend blocking YouTube. But anyway, kids, and I don't just mean eight-year-olds and five-year-olds like my kids. I mean, teenagers and people in their 20s and people in their 30s. I mean, YouTube is just ingrained in our lives and in young people's lives now in a way that podcasts aren't. So yeah, we've been working incredibly hard on our YouTube. Appreciate everyone who has checked it out. We do put content on there that doesn't hit this pod feed. If you go to our YouTube page and hit subscribe, we'd really appreciate it. Obviously, it's free. Honestly, though, like if it were up to me, I wouldn't be on YouTube at all. Uh, you know, me personally, I mean, it's just humiliating. The stupid YouTube bro games that you have to play on there and the tricks and the nonsense. You know, if my kids ever go on YouTube, they're going to see me with some ass clown face in the thumbnail, which it's awful. I don't want people to see me like that. But there's also no point to do content if no one sees it. So you have to play the YouTube games. Um, yeah, just is what it is. All right, question three from Chase Allen. He says, first football season with legal sports betting here. I'm used to having limited spare time and using it on DFS and poker, but racking lines and grinding props seems very time intensive. Any tips on time and bankroll management for those of us with jobs and kids, prioritizing edges and what's plus EV? Yeah, I, I think this is an easy one. Uh, for me, not saying for everyone, but for me, I do not do well with a lot of different things going on. If I'm going to be good at anything, I need to be hyper, hyper focused. And for me, that doesn't mean, oh, I'm focused on football. That, that's not narrow enough. It can't, doesn't mean, oh, I'm focused on fantasy football. That's not narrow enough. I'm focused on DFS. No, that's not even narrow enough. I'm focused on DFS head-to-heads, period. You know, which is extremely narrow. But, you know, and I'm also not saying, by the way, that that should be the niche that you choose. It probably isn't. But maybe you want to say, I'm going to dedicate all the time I have on this to being the best I can be at 100-person 
NFL DFS tournaments on FanDuel. And once you establish that, you just dive all the way in. You know the field. You can project what your opponents will do. You can use sims to figure out what types of lineups do well in that field. Just hyper, hyper focus on these 100-person GPPs. Or say you want to be a, a, a gambler. You know, you want to bet on sports. I would say that you're more likely to win. I think you're still really unlikely to win, but you're more likely to win if you say, I'm only going to focus on college basketball totals in the Ivy League this year. And I'm just going to follow and watch and digest and analyze every Ivy League game and try to figure it out. So that would be my take. One of the biggest mistakes I think people can make, not just in gambling, but in life, is just trying to do too many things. Yeah, you do 10 things, but you do them all meh, you know? I think people would just be better off in general. I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to do it great. And honestly, that's what it takes in most, if not all, gambling markets. You legit have to be great to win. So yeah, Chase, my take is just find the niche you like best, the, the niche that fits best with your schedule, and lean into it. Maybe it's some niche in DFS. Maybe it's some niche in props. But yeah, I just get in there and grind it hard. Uh, question four from Simon. He says, I often enter DFS tournaments with around 200 runners. How much should my team lean into cash strategies versus GPP strategies in a field this small? So this all depends on your opponents. If everyone is playing a cash type lineup or small tweaks off a cash lineup, then it's a printing press to play something more contrarian. Wouldn't even need to be that contrarian. Just X out the top four or five plays on a slate and go from there. But of course, it's not that simple because people are doing all kinds of different things in these 200 person tournaments. And I did want to take a minute here to talk about projecting ownership. As you guys know, hopefully, we've always projected large field tournament ownership. I think we have a very, very good process for that. We make a ton of manual tweaks. It's a lot of work, but we've been showing around a 90% R squared among the best, if not best, versus competition. This year, we launched projected ownership for small and medium field DFS tournaments. And this is way harder to do. You know, When a contest has 100,000 entries in it, things normalize across that biggest sample and, it, and we can be like really predictive. But in a 200 entry contest, well, all it takes is maybe 10 people to see we have Zach Moss for 27% in small field as projected ownership. And they decide, well, I don't want to take on Zach Moss at 27% and they play someone else. And so then Zach Moss comes in at 10% or 12%, making him an awesome play. Whereas if we would have projected Moss at 10% ownership in small field, he likely would have come in at 27%. So my point is that we're doing well with small field projected ownership so far. It's only three weeks in. Our first three weeks, we're at 79% R squared. Definitely good. But there's going to be more big misses on small field versus large field. And that all that brings me back to Simon's question. In a 200-person field, I would lean into GPP strategy, but also understand you don't need anything near the nuts. So double stacks are more viable. Triple stacks are more viable. You can run all this stuff through the small field sim to see it clear. And it, like what Dink was talking about for his process there, if you go back and listen to the video we did, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I think a 200-person field is just a bit big to play a cash team with one tweak or something. If you had a cashless team with a few tweaks, um, I think that can work. Question five from Dan. He says, so many people post pictures of getting limited on online betting apps or not getting paid by these sites. Is it like that if you walk into a sports book in Vegas? Would they just not pay you out as a book? 
Yeah, Dan, I, I know limiting is the biggest topic in sports betting. At this point, I think most people understand how and why it works online in the betting apps. I'm honestly tired of talking about that. It's like a dead horse. I actually, you know, limiting is way different than not paying out. I've never seen personally anyone not pay out. Limiting, obviously. But I did want to talk about the live stuff for a second that Dan asked about. So in terms of betting in person at a book in Vegas or a sports book, in your town or whatever, an illegal one. Yes, going to the counter, going to the actual sports book, going to the casino is a good way to get around limiting, at least in the short term. Some books typically take more at the counter if you take the effort to show up at the counter. And maybe you can hit a kiosk covertly or something like that. But after a bit, that's going to dry up as well. When I was in Philly, I was betting at Sugar House, it was called, I think it might be called Bet Rivers now. Um, and this was a few years ago. I was in action there maybe two months. Um, and one day I'm just doing my thing. I'm at the window making some bets. And the supervisor comes to the ticket writer and whispers in his ear. The ticket writer then says to me, oh, sorry, sir. We can't take any more bets from you. If you have questions, you can talk to, and he points to the supervisor. So I step to the side and the guy comes over and he says, we have the right to decline business to anyone. And we decided not to do business with you anymore. And I say, okay, uh, can I ask why? And he says, well, we don't have to disclose that, but you're welcome to continue to play poker or slots or table games or dine our restaurants. And that's it. You know, it's not a big deal. It's not unique. Uh, it's just reality. We can argue all day about if it's quote unquote right or not, but it is what it is. So yeah, I think if you are a winning player, a winning better, taking the time to go to the kiosk, go to the counter is worth it, at least for short term, short term. But going back to the question, I just want to be clear. If you have a ticket, you will get paid out. Like they have to pay you out by law. It's just, if you win for a while, some, most books eventually will cut you down to low limits or not let you bet at all. Question six from Igor, he says, What's your stance on people approaching pseudo online personalities in the wild? A couple of years ago, I saw you at Stogie Joe's in Philly and could not muster the courage to say what's up in fear of an awkward interaction. Yeah, man, Stogie Joe's, Igor, legit. One of my favorite places in Philly. I was going there at least one time a week uh, for a while. Uh, not surprised you saw me. Such an elite atmosphere food combo. Miss that place. Um, you know, it's, it's really wild to me that people see me as any kind of celebrity or online personality or whatever. It's like, oh, uh, let's get Adam over to Stogie Joe's. He's a, he's a pseudo celebrity. He could cause a, a pseudo stir. Shout out to Kramer for that one. But it's really crazy. I, I, I get recognized a decent amount now. I think in part due to the YouTube stuff, but um, I get recognized a decent amount now. And there's definitely a disconnect. Like it's sad, but I'm probably more myself online. The stuff I say on this podcast or on Twitter, a lot of it I'd never say in real life because I'm sure I would offend someone or they judge me or whatever. But for some insane reason, I'm so much more comfortable doing inappropriate jokes or being harsh or being super honest online. So when I've met people in real life, I mean, unless I've known you forever and you're sick, 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 sick fuck like me, it's fucking boring. You know, I, I don't do too well talking to people that I don't really know. I try and I've tried to get better at that because I do think it's an important life skill. But yeah, my point is that the way you guys know me 
on here, on Twitter, on the shows. I think it's just better we keep it that way because if you got to know me in real life, it's just a way, way worse version of me. Uh, you'd be disappointed. Trust me. I actually think a lot of people in real life, like out in the wild, think I'm aloof or arrogant or not nice, but I really do swear that is not it. I'm just uncomfortable, you know, period. All right. Question seven, last question we're going to do today comes from Brady. He says, what's the narrative called now for T-Swift in the stands? Skybox narrative, positive or negative correlation? Yeah, this is so ridiculous. I got so many questions about the Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey stuff. So first we had Silva's epic summer tales of going to the Taylor Swift concert in Chicago where he became a full-blown Swifty. People are sending me videos of him singing along to her in his car and stuff like that. And now, now in the middle of NFL season, we have Travis Kelsey apparently befriending, dating, courting, who knows, Taylor Swift. Here at Gender Labs LLC, aka Gender Consultants, we have run all the data on the Kelsey Taylor Swift situation through the Sims. And what we have found is this is a massive net negative. T Swift is one of the most coveted, sought after women on the planet. Kelsey is going to need an assistant to keep up with all of her needs and the needs of also being a professional football player at the same time. Not to mention the dude's almost 34 years old. I mean, we just cannot have any distractions at this point. You know, the whole thing is wild. Like, I know everyone says, shoot your shot. But I never thought that actually worked. Instead, Kelsey goes like cold Instagram post or tweet or something saying he wants to meet Taylor Swift. Fast forward a couple weeks, she's in the goddamn suite going berserk next to Kelsey's fucking mom. I mean, I wouldn't let my, my wife meet my mom for like a year. I, I mean, Jesus, man. So yeah, Igor's question really says it all. I get the dudes drinking beers and eating pizza at Stogie Joe's. Those are the ones that hit me up. Kelsey gets Taylor goddamn Swift. It's just unreal. All right. Thanks for tuning in to this week's solo pod. Genuinely do appreciate you all so much. Stay tuned to this pod feed as it will get crowded over the next 48 hours. Waivers, team by team, rest of season top 150 show, and maybe more all coming real soon on this feed for producer Luke for everyone behind the scenes at ETR. I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm -hmm.